Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I'll be talking to Raphael Baer and George Eaton about Scotland and the Crimea. Ed Smith will be joining us to talk about shouty politics and Prime Minister's questions. And then Raphael Baer will be interviewing Ivan Lewis, the Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary. I'm joined by our political editor, Raphael Baer, and George Eaton, editor of The Staggers. And first, we're going to talk about Scotland. Uh, Earlier this week, we had a New Statesman lecture by Alex Salmon, the First Minister, in which he talked about Scotland's future in Scotland's hands. Um, George, you asked him a question afterwards, which I thought was really interesting, about the 50p tax rate. Um, And basically, he said that he wouldn't pledge to reintroduce it, because he needed Scotland's economy to be competitive. And how interesting was that in terms of of where he positions himself as a kind of left-wing person rather than a nationalist politician. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I pointed out to him, you, you spoke a lot in your speech about social justice, about how Scotland could pursue a more progressive approach than Westminster, therefore do you support the, the 50p rate? And his belief is that Scotland would need to support policies such as uh, you know, a low level of, of, of income tax and uh, a, a lower level of corporation tax to attract business investments away from London. But this obviously goes down very badly with the left of his party, um, who wants Scottish independence precisely so that they can have a higher level of income tax than Westminster and and probably uh, tax corporations more rather than less. It's interesting, the tone of some of what he says on this, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a million miles away from a kind of new Labour proposition, isn't it, where essentially you say we need to be sort of lean and dynamic and competitive within the framework of a sort of globalised pre-market world economy um especially a small newly independent country gonna has to to be able to sort of undercut rivals w- with its tax regime um but at the same time somehow this we can triangulate that by also having a, a progressive vision and um through you know public service reform he talks about this this childcare plan that they have um which would ultimately also make it a a fairer society uh, and he sort of hinted a more more equal one now w- whether or not those two things can actually be done at the same time is one of the big dilemmas mm. of progressive politics. But 
I, I don't think he'd ever dare call it sort of Blairite in public. But it's not a million it's miles away. Yeah, it's, right, it's reminiscent of that. You know, so yeah, orthodox sort of brown, stealthy progressivism um, with a bit of genuflection to kind of global finance. But Raph, I'm, I don't know what you thought of this, the idea about where Scottish independence or more likely you know, devolution max or some form of greater powers, where does that leave the north of England? Um, well, uh, geographically, it'll probably still be pretty much where, <laughs> yeah, where it always was. But um, let's say this: there's, there's, sort of, there's a there's sort of land grab, and the border moves stuff. But there's, at the moment, but no you say that. But that a lot of the planned. letters that we had in this week uh, were from people in the north of England going, like, if you're going to have this breakaway, more left-wing government, take us with you. Well, this is very interesting. I mean, because you know, underneath all of this is this is the sense that what Alex Salmon's political project is predicated on very strongly over the next year, 18 months, is the sense that there are parts of the country, parts of the United Kingdom, but Scotland sort of chief among them, where people just really don't vote for the Conservative Party. Um, and the sense that the Conservative Party it, it sort of speaks for, governs on behalf of, represents of the slightly more affluent and, and a culturally fairly distinct southeast of England and then also to an extent, London, um, as the engine of economic power rather than culturally, the capital's quite, votes Labour quite a lot. But um, And so you can see how if you then have a, a, a new locus of power north of the border in Scotland with, with Edinburgh as an independent capital city uh, or a much more devolved administration, uh, then that there is this sort of political valley uh, in the north of England where... Um, a Westminster government wouldn't wouldn't cut through to it, wouldn't speak on behalf of it, or wouldn't govern on behalf of it because there's so many safe Labour seats. And although we wish it weren't that cynical, the reality is, particularly in the run-up to an election, the, the, the goodies that the Treasury can give out and the benefits that the Treasury tries to bestow on parts of the country will go to places that they think the Conservatives think they can win, and that's not the north of England. But don't you think that's becoming a kind of more and more a sort of sub-theme of politics? You saw it very clearly over the floods about the feeling that if this had been happening in Surrey, it would never have been allowed to go on so long. And the same thing that you've, you know, any kind of feeling about the, the recovery from the recession, about the fact that you know London, we hear all these great stories about you know house prices are booming. This well, is a, they're not no, everywhere. Yeah, this are is, they? And I think you're absolutely right. This is such an important feature of politics at the moment that is, and it was something a, a Labour shadow cabinet minister said to me not that long ago that actually the loss of the southern seats to the Labour Party means that they are not getting fed back to them a lot of important feedback about actually what people's concerns are. So, you know, for example, the, the, the Parliamentary Labour Party at the moment can really tell itself with a lot of conviction that the most pressing thing it needs to do is take on the bedroom tax. And the bedroom tax is a terrible policy and it's right for the Labour Party to want to do something about it. But the reality is there are lots of places where there used to be Labour MPs after 1997 and in 2001 and even after 2005, where had those, had there still been Labour MPs there now, they would be saying, yeah, OK, look, actually, in my part of the world, people aren't even noticing the bedroom tax, don't care about it, and actually buy into a conservative narrative on benefits. And to expand our interest further in the country, we need to be listening to those people. And likewise, the Conservatives, they're not getting the right feedback from constituencies where they don't have a presence. And so, um, yes, when politics is stuck, we've talked about this before, but that is a, a that is a geographical and a constituency thing. And George, how good do you think the Westminster response to, to Salmon has been so far? I mean, we talked about the idea about them playing their kind of big cards really early. You know, you can't, we're going to have to break up. Um, we can't have a currency union, that won't work, that kind of thing. Have they got anything left in the locker or have, you know, is this... Is, 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 is there going to be a resurgence of salmon there? Because he's trading quite badly in the polls. 
he is, and I, I certainly think that they'll be defeated, and, and pro- probably by a double-digit margin, I think. I don't think it's going to be as close as, as some suggest, because I think all the fundamentals, um, the economy and the currency questions are against him, and most people think that they'll be worse off under Scottish independence. But this comes back to something we said before about the 2012 US election, about the fact that everyone has to pretend that it's really close, because yeah. then you, you can talk about it. You can There's a more exciting narrative, I guess. There is, and and actually, a lot of people um, won't look at the, the polls. Sort of look, won't look at the average. They'll just take the individual poll that confirms their their prejudices and 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 write that up. Um, I think the challenge is. I mean, you've you've had the sort of united front from Westminster. I can understand that strategy. Why they did that on the currency because the message was that whichever party's in power, you know, you're not going to have the pound. Um, I think the challenge for Labour in particular is to say, actually, look, you don't need Scotland to become independent, to become a more progressive country, because Labour would pursue a more progressive approach um, in all the areas uh, that you've been unhappy with before, foreign policy, welfare policy, tax and so on. That's a very important point. And, and uh, it's the Scottish Labour conference coming up um, at the end of this month, I think. And um my understanding is that Ed Miliband will try to get that message across. I think that there is, if it is true, and I'm inclined to agree with George, uh, that ultimately you just look at the long-term data trend, there just aren't enough people who want Scotland to be independent, to vote for Scottish independence. Um, and it is also true that every time David Cameron goes north of the border, the, the, it does the SNP a favour yeah. because people just hate the Tories. Uh, what do you have? You have a situation where the union will be saved but it's not going to be the Prime Minister that saved it. Well, that kind of creates a vacancy for a politician who can essentially, you know, the crown is on the table, crown being the politician who basically saved the union. And you can see, I'm aware that in Ed Miliband's office, they're thinking, oh, that's a crown that Ed Miliband might plausibly, I'm not saying he will, but might just about plausibly take and try and put on his head. And he'll come out in a big pair of saltire checked trousers. (laughs) And he'll be acclaimed as a god. Yeah, I'm sure he could just read. I'm sure he's got more than one of those in his wardrobe at home. Um, but to pivot slightly, Raf, you wrote a a, a a very fierce column this week, actually, about David Cameron and, and the coalition foreign, well, conservative-led foreign policy. Um, just tell me what your what your essential thesis was there. Well, the the argument broadly is that you know, in the context of what we've seen happen in Ukraine and Crimea, uh, that. There is a an obviously an enormous challenge facing the, the Britain's role in the world. You know, we are a we have the attributes of a great power in terms of still a big economy, nuclear weapons, um, you know, leading role in NATO, the European Union. Um, these are all sort of carried over from the twentieth century. So it's not entirely obvious, or at least you need quite some sophisticated account of how that should sustain itself in the twenty first century, um, if indeed that's what we want to do, um, and. You are sort of a, being as dispassionate as you can. You have to sort of give up on expecting David Cameron to actually articulate that, um, because all the evidence suggests, from what we've seen so far, uh, that he doesn't. As I wrote, he doesn't like to dwell on perplexing things. I mean, he is a uh, he's essentially a dilettante, um, and he his entire political project, both he and George Osborne, has been predicated on making political debate in this country as parochial as possible and simplifying everything you know to, i use the example of of a sort of a global economic crisis that involved you know massive imbalances between china and the u.s becomes um, labor spent all the money yeah and systemic risk and market failure becomes labor threw away a load of money on scroungers getting you know job seekers allowance you know it's or treating the eu renegotiations purely as an appeal as a way of managing his... the conservative party uh, and not having the, the courage to say the single market is an engine of prosperity 
for everyone in the European Union, including Britain, and actually enterprising migrants coming here to this country to work uh, is good for the economy. And it is also equivalently good that British people have the opportunity to go and work in other Europe. I mean, that's, the Treasury doesn't dispute that argument. The Treasury believes George Oswald knows that is true. He just recognises there's political advantage in pretend in, in sort of gaming a, a, a slightly protectionist, reactionary, anti-immigration language in a campaign. And it's shabby. It's, and ultimately... It contributes to this sense that Britain doesn't really want to engage with the question of what its place is in the world, because ultimately, you look at David Cameron and George Osborne, you can't answer the question, why do they want power, other than, I think I called it the sort of the recreational pleasure of, of winning. And that's not a good enough reason. And George, where do you think, I mean, how do you think Labour have, have played the Ukraine crisis? Do you think it has been a moment where Ed Miliband has looked like it, he could be a sort of statesman in waiting? Well, I think they had a quite good start because some Conservative ministers were idiotic enough to try and basically blame him for it, blame his uh, his failure to support military intervention in, in, in Syria for... for for yes, that's inviting the obvious rejoinder that David Cameron called a vote that he knew that you know, he didn't know that he could win and then had sort of went, well, in that case, I'm taking my ball home i'm not yeah. playing yeah uh and yesterday's pmqs as you'd expect was very consensual Miliband being very statesmanlike his final question wasn't actually a question at all he just said you know the government will have our full support at this dangerous moment for the world all very bipartisan but i think that consensus masks the potential for some quite significant differences over the uh over whether there should be trade sanctions and, and asset freezes and how tough they should be because you can see a difference of emphasis between sort of conservatives who are concerned with protecting business interests and protecting the city of london there's a lot of russian money in london and labor internationalists who say you know we must not put profit before and i don't think we can be let's not pretend that labor isn't divided over any big foreign policy question and that is the legacy of 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 blair and blairism i mean that ultimately you know, it was, I agree, it was completely facile and, and vacuous, some of those attacks that you had on, on Ed Miliband uh, over the vote on Syria, somehow signalling that Putin should, could feel free to go and annex Crimea. It is also true that the Labour leadership does not like to strike conspicuous poses in any big foreign policy question, because every time you do, you're going to have a bunch of people in the, Labour, in the PLP and elsewhere in the Labour Party who just love having good old ding-dong over whether or not Tony Blair is a war criminal or a, or a, or a messiah. And it's, it's tedious for the leadership, it's bad for the Labour Party, and they don't want to have that conversation, so they don't. And on that note, I think we'll probably leave it. Thank you very much, George and Raph. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast on the road, the occasional segment when we actually get out of the office and meet the people who make the decisions in politics rather than the people who wibble on about the decisions in politics uh, from the comfort of a journalist's desk. Uh, in that context, I'm honoured to be joined uh, by the Shadow Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Ivan Lewis, from his magnificent office in Westminster with a view of the Shard and the London Eye. Um, Ivan, I'm of a generation for whom Northern Ireland was in the news every week, every day. It was one of the most pressing issues. Um, Then, mercifully, for all the right reasons, the salience of it dropped right down. Last week, we had this this case of uh, a suspect in a terrorism trial who walked away from court because it transpired. Uh, He had had a letter of assurance that he was no longer considered on the run. Uh, And this obviously reopened a lot of 
of wounds and left a lot of people very angry. So just from the opposition's point of view, are you satisfied now with the way this has been handled? Yeah, we fully support the inquiry that David Cameron has established. I think the first thing to say about Northern Ireland that we should always remember is the tremendous progress that has been made over the last uh, 15 years. But it's true that this uh, judgment came in the context of a very difficult year, a lot of fragility, uh, an increase in the activity of dissident terrorists that poses a real threat to security. Uh, loyalist protests around um, decisions about flying flags, about parades. So the judgment last week came in that context of a situation where people are increasingly concerned about peace and stability. In and what, to what extent is this, do you think, connected to uh, economic optimism? Because there was a period, where obviously, when you had a peace dividend that people talked about in relation to Northern Ireland, also picking up a little bit of traction from what you know we referred to when it was fashionable to do so, as the, the sort of Celtic tiger phenomenon in the Republic. Uh, these factors are now spent a little bit, aren't they? And, and presumably that is going to be something that is feeding to a high level of youth unemployment. You're going to have a lot of angry young men on the streets of Northern Ireland who could feasibly be susceptible to a kind of new generation of, of political radicalisation. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, when the Good Friday Agreement was signed, youth unemployment in Northern Ireland was down at 9%. It's now up at 22%. That is a stark illustration of the challenges that we face. Of course, a sense of social exclusion, alienation, fuels the tensions and the strains that exist. And that's across the community divide. So if people don't see any uh, prospect of employment, uh, there's intergenerational deprivation that passes from one generation to the next. There is insufficient jobs. All of that fuels a question mark about what is the benefits of this peace process for me, my family and my immediate community. Uh, and that's why, whilst all of the emphasis in Northern Ireland often is around political issues and the past, those things are incredibly important. Actually, the issue that will really change things generationally in Northern Ireland is jobs, is education. OK, well, let's move right range then back to, to mainland UK then, because the, I think you've you made the case, rightly, that it's, it's, it's such exceptional circumstances in Northern Ireland. But those same questions, welfare reform, public sector reform, these are going to be huge challenges for a Labour government if it comes in 2015, sort of, irrespective of, of what the, the fiscal, the, the exact fiscal timetable of what, you, what the Labour administration would be expected to do. So you know, you've written before, you've written for the New Statesman about what a Labour agenda for reform of the economy, reform of the state would be. How do you see that now progressing as part of Labour's offer? Well, I think it's absolutely uh, central. Uh, we've got to have a situation where if you like, what we have from this government is ideologically is a withered state uh, with a view that somehow the big society will move in and rescue uh, communities and the country. That clearly is not working. It's extraordinary that we no longer hear two words in any of David Cameron's speeches, and that's the big society. This was this man's big idea. And that demonstrates that his failure to detoxify the Tory brand is a major problem for the Conservative Party. But from Labour's point of view, there is no doubt that towards our end, the end of period, we were in government. The hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. What's the sense that we only ever talked about the state uh, and the market? And we talked often about an over-centralized state. We gave the impression that everything could be changed from Westminster and Whitehall. Uh, And in my view, we have to move away from that. Uh, We have to recognise that, first of all, we'll have to do more with less. That is the reality in terms of the fiscal climate. Do you think that has been fully understood by the rest of the the Labour Party? I mean, it's still quite a contentious thing to say. I've been to Labour conferences, Fabian conferences. You you get some, there's some serious bridling at that assertion still. Well, it's it's reality. And I think it's very, very important that Ed Miliband and Ed Balls uh, have made that very, very clear. Uh, One of the regrets I have about our period in office is uh, we didn't talk about community and family anywhere near as much as we should have done. As I say, we talked about government, we talked about the market. Why family? What do you mean? Because the politics of family is is still often seen through the prism of whether certain models of family life are are somehow sort of morally better than others or or socially desirable. So what, what might Labour have said about family that it didn't say? Well, first of all, it isn't making judgments about the nature of families or the shape of families. It's recognising what matters to people. If you're going to be relevant in a world where people are increasingly cynical about politics, what matters to people? What matters to people is their family. It's their job. It's the neighbourhood that they live in. If politicians don't speak in that language and don't recognise that many of the things that are about improving people's not just standard of living in the context of uh, the standard of living crisis, but also improving people's quality of life is the interaction between government uh, and family no, and community, I, I then you miss the point. Yeah, but, no, I understand that. If it's I, just a transaction between the state and the individual... But this gets us into the territory, I mean, and I've followed with interest, great interest um, Ed Miliband's, the Hugo Young lecture, talking about, about the relational state and, and changing the, the culture of the way that government is delivered. The bit that was missing for me from that analysis is where it says the way, you know, what kind of state delivery ha- that happens now will have to change. In other words, actually... I'll give two examples to help. Yeah. And, and I'm not announcing Labour Party policy now yeah. because Ed Balls will, uh, will, 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 will not be very happy. But I'll give two examples. There are two big issues, big challenges that face society. Uh, one is the educational underperformance of children, particularly children from disadvantaged backgrounds. All of the solutions over the years about that has been about the quality of leadership of schools, about the curriculum, about teaching. All of those things matter massively. But what also matters, particularly for the most disadvantaged young people, is they don't have one trusted adult in their life. Not one trusted adult. They go home and there isn't anybody who cares about education or even relates to it. Why couldn't we galvanise the thousands of people out there who would love to mentor young people in that situation. That isn't about a, a massively, uh, largely funded state programme. It's about galvanising the potential of citizens who would want to make a difference to that uh, whole range of young people who currently underperform educationally, and we pay a heavy price for that. The second example, one of the great challenges facing our society is the ageing society. And the debate often is about how are you going to pay for long-term care? These are very, very difficult uh, issues. Andy Burnham, absolutely right to talk about integrating health and social care. Uh, But actually, one of the biggest single factors in terms of the ageing society is loneliness, 
uh, and isolation. Again, there are large numbers of people out there who would not have to be, in fact, shouldn't be paid professionals, paid social workers, paid care providers, who would be more than happy to take responsibility for supporting an isolated, lonely, older person. So it's not always reaching for the state solution. It's the state recognising the scale of some of those challenges. Okay, last question. Um, The... This, as we said, you know, is, was the theme of a big speech that Ed Miliband made recently. Um, one of the criticisms that is, is sometimes made is that, you know, Ed will say these things and they are ticked off part of the agenda. Um, but actually, you don't necessarily have confidence that um, it, will, there will, it will be sustained as a story and the, well, you know, Labour's account of what it plans to do will move on to something else. These are, because, as we've just been saying, there are so many potential obstacles to this. It's the sort of thing that has to be embarked on in the, sort of the first hundred days of a Labour government, isn't it? I'll never forget the uh, meeting that I had uh, with Ed, the first meeting I had with Ed after he became leader and I'd been appointed to the Shadow Cabinet. We had a two-and-a-half-hour meeting. And uh, the passionate part of Ed that was... Uh, really, really good at that meeting was when he talked about his commitment to a new state. He doesn't believe in an over-centralised, top-down state. He is as passionate about that as he is about the need to create a new economy, which works for the many, not just a few at the top. And to be honest, there is a debate about how we fight the next election. There are some people who would argue that we fight it on a very narrow prospectus. Uh, My view is if we fight it on a very, very narrow prospectus, it's going to be incredibly difficult to enthuse and persuade people that they want change. The danger is they would stick with status quo. I believe we've got to focus on the cost of living crisis where people know there is a big disparity between their everyday lives and what the government says about economic recovery. But equally, we've got to focus on what kind of community, what kind of society do you and your family want to live in? And if we're able to do that, I think we'll be able to do what's crucially important if Labour is to win. We have to reassure people where they have doubts about us, uh, on economic credibility, on immigration, on welfare. They have anxieties. We have to reassure them. But we also have to be the people that give people a sense of optimism and hope that it doesn't need to be like this. This country can have a better future. Now, Now, the example I always give of this is the covenant that has always existed in our society. And that covenant is your kids and your grandkids always do better than you do. At the moment, that covenant has never been a a greater risk. And I think a Labour Party that can demonstrate to people we are determined to restore that covenant covenant, will actually resonate with a a significant number of people who who still need to be persuading to vote for us at the next election. So you would reject the the idea that is around, and I've obviously picked up and have written about, that um, that's all well and good, but the reality is it comes down to um, if enough Tories vote UKIP and you hang on to your Lib Dem switches, you're going to nab those crucial seats in the Midlands and you'll get over the line. That is the counter-narrative to the one you've just given, that actually the reality of how Ed Miliband becomes Prime Minister is in the numbers. I don't think that that is correct. Ed Miliband will become Prime Minister as a result of doing two things. One is reassuring people where they have doubts. He's been very clear about saying that there were elements of our immigration policy that should have been different, uh, for example. He and Ed Balls have been very clear 
about saying that there will have to be a very tough approach to fiscal responsibility. So there is an understanding, and Rachel Reeves has been very clear about the fact uh, that the social security system welfare uh, has to be reformed, although we don't support some of the reforms of the current government. But alongside that, the work that John Cruddus is doing on the policy review, the speech that Ed made recently on our commitment to people power, of devolving power and empowering uh, communities, of changing the role of the state. All of that is about what kind of society and what kind of country do you want to live in? Uh, and I think the Labour Party it can win that argument and I think it can win it uh, convincingly. People do ask questions about their quality of life uh, as well as uh, their cost of living. And I think it's those two things coming together uh, that will give Labour a message that will be very, very compelling uh, coming into the election. OK, Ivan, thanks very much. That's plenty of good chatter for our uh, most dedicated podcast listeners. Thanks very much. That was Raphael Baer interviewing Ivan Lewis. And if you'd like to hear more about the relational state, and frankly, why wouldn't you, you can log on to our website at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast for a full version of that interview. I'm joined by our political editor, Raphael Baer, and our columnist, Ed Smith, to talk about civility and space. So, Ed, you wrote your column this week basically around the thesis about why the House of Commons chamber is so shouty mm. and, and two benches sitting opposite each other. Um, you mentioned the fact there's not enough seats for all the MPs to sit at the time. Do you like shouty politics or do you personally find it off-putting? I don't warm to it, no, and I think lots of people don't. I think we underestimate the extent to which the few little TV clips of Prime Minister's questions is actually, for many people, all the politics they'll consume in that week. And I think many people find the the tone and the manner of it very off-putting. I understand that um, politics is, by definition, adversarial to a degree, and of course there's a great tradition of parliamentary democracy in this country. However, I don't think that necessarily supports and I'm thinking conservatism, that there's something about the layout of our house that somehow makes us a wonderfully mature democracy. I think we can do a lot better. There's some interesting research came out quite recently, I think by the Hansard Society, on quite the extent to which people despise Prime Minister's questions, think it uh, makes politicians look like children, like idiots. Uh, they, it's, I mean, the, the, the data were shocking, actually, in terms of mm. how badly people came across. And... I mean, my my sense is the MPs themselves are quite divided over this. I recently had one shadow cabinet minister say to me that at, at PMQs, as they call it, um, she feels physically sick and it struggles to not just get up and walk out because it's so vile, the, mm. the sort of the atmosphere. But I've also had uh, the front bench politician say, um, you know, that's the deal. If you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. Because, and this is actually, it is a crucible in which... Uh, bluff, nonsense and, and other weakness is found out very quickly and that's quite good for democracy. But, but it's, got, tension, it's got out of control, I think. That's the tension, isn't it, between you want to, you don't want everyone sitting around in soggy consensus, sort of hmm. droning or you talk, talk about this idea about people giving long, boring speeches. But you, Ed, say that, you know, that's not the problem. No one, when professionalisation of politics means people don't give boring speeches, really. Sure, the, the hero of the let's not touch the chamber is obviously Winston Churchill, who played a decisive hand in 1943 when the Commons was bombed, and he argued that the reasons why the, the commons should be rebuilt in the same form with the same shape was that a uh, he despised the sort of horseshoe consensual he probably had Borgen in mind even though the tv series wasn't around then and secondly that there was something um 
wonderful about a cramped yeah, house that, that, that worked that against kind of stuff, yeah. long speeches. Long speeches aren't the problem now. The problem is shoutiness and no one can actually be... An idea is not allowed to break out. What really interests me is that I think both... Uh, well, I say both the, the Conservative and Labour leader, I think instinctively, and I think this is not just posturing, don't like it that much. Mm-hmm. And I think in an ideal world they would change it, but there's always a problem with with being the one that's perceived as looking like you can't take exactly. it. Exactly, it's, it's a zero-sum game, isn't it? If one person uh, sort of agrees to be quiet and sensible and consensual, then they're potentially giving the upper hand to whoever is going to sure. be, going to sort of steal the opportunity to make a, a really pointed and aggressive partisan attack, because you know, in the idiom of British politics, that looks strong, and being quiet and accommodating looks weak. But uh, uh, my sense is that... It's got worse because of an interaction between the sort of shouty, adversarial, combative style and the desperate narrowing of the parameters of what MPs are allowed to say. So Mm. if you combine, if you could be with a great rhetorical flourish, say something original in that idiom, it would be quite effective. But if you combine a narrowing of message, so there's only about seven words which encapsulate what you are permitted to say and make it shouty, those two things together really make it playground insults. I think there are other things that we don't talk about very often either. So I went to the Scottish Parliament recently and I was surprised by how great the disabled access is in it. And this is a real problem. The lobby room is almost I don't know how you would get to it if you were in a wheelchair for example. And there are huge problems lift, about... But yes, no, but it's not there It's not easily right, navigable, is it? But for anybody who isn't very no. mobile. And this is a general, I think there's a wider problem, but when I go, which I don't do very often, into Parliament it feels like this is somewhere that is much more comfortable for people who've been to a private school with cloisters you know, they've been to mm. Oxford, they've been to an Inns of Court. I think there is a certain feeling about a certain type of person will feel more comfortable there yeah. than I, others. I think that's true. And I also think that's a problem with the way politics is perceived. I think that it, it kind of makes a certain type of man look uh, all too at home, actually, mm. which is not, I don't think, a good message for politics as a whole. So... Uh, the people who should really be uh, calling for reformation of the House actually are, are people who probably are shown to be close to being a caricature when they're in it, ironically. I think that people who switch on the television and they see uh, a certain type of pinstripe suit and a certain type of tie and a certain type of shouting and paper, wa- paper waving, that doesn't do democracy, I don't think, in this country any good at all. There is certainly also a, a problem... And it does come from that culture, the way a certain kind of establishment complacency is sort of in the upholstery of the place. That there is a perception of what constitutes a good parliamentarian as opposed to what constitutes a good lawmaker. And there there are people who, who who, who have quite good careers in... Westminster by gaming Parliament very effectively uh, whether you know, it's with the, the well-crafted amendment or at the timing of when you introduce an amendment or what you do with your various different you know, three-minute rules and the rest of it and talking things out and all that sort of stuff that is parlour game politics it can be quite effective in Westminster and it can really raise someone's um, stature in that tiny idiom of SW1 um, it doesn't make better laws, it doesn't make better governments would you do anything about it if you could? If mm. Parliament, you know, heaven forfend, burnt to the ground, mm. would you rebuild it like it is now? Would you rebuild it in a horseshoe with, you know, lovely pine uh, wood, make you, it a bit borgen? You've made that easier for me. I, I certainly would rebuild it differently in the event of it needing to be rebuilt. The difficult thing is that, you know, starting from where we're at, I can't see a Parliament easily voting for more money for a new, <laughs> a new type yes, of voting chamber. Point, yeah. But, uh, yes, I think actually as a kind of medium-term 
if you like, if I was at Parliament, at the back of my collective mind, I'd be thinking when an opportunity does arise, let's have a different atmosphere. And I think it actually would make a difference. I think Churchill was absolutely right when he said we shape buildings and buildings shape us, just not in the way he meant. Mm. I think it would actually be good all round in every respect for the manner, uh, for the mood, for the visual uh, image of politics if we had a slightly more modern, or significantly yeah. more modern I, See, I'd come space. at it, I, I, I'm inclined to agree with that, but I'd come at it at a slightly different angle. I don't think it will change until we have the, what, the, the culture changes that you, allows MPs and politicians to speak their mind without fear of gaff or going off message and if you had more freedom to actually express yourself in all sorts of forums there wouldn't be this sort of concentration this sort of pressure cooker that mm. may, means the few expressions that are permitted come out that bellowing volume For, following your own logic we in the media have a role to play there Absolutely. when people do make mistakes yeah. and they're just mistakes they're not meaningful yeah. mistakes they're just silly mistakes when plainly let's, you know what he meant then let's why just call not? it yeah, that just call it that yeah exactly but I wonder if I, you know, maybe this or is she. a utopian dream of the idea that we'll go through you know gaff-tastic coverage and out the other side there'll come a point where people are just bored of constant fishing for gaffs I think you called it once right? um, you'd hope so but the, the I... social media has created such a new fertile terrain for you know mm. what he or she said on Twitter what he or she posted on their Facebook page I'm afraid gaff fishing you know there's, there's oceans to be trawled before that <laughs> on that depressing note I will say thank you very much to Ed and Raph thank thanks You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. The podcast is produced by Philip Morn and our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.